0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name's Sophie Black, I'm a writer, editor and head of special projects at the Wheeler Centre and on behalf of the Sydney Writers' Festival, I'd like to welcome you all to this conversation, where everyone is actually an expert, except me. Now, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to Elders past and present, Sovereignty, sovereignty was never ceded. This always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, <clears throat> we're a day out from the election, so there's a lot to unpack in the next hour. One of the many exhausting things about social media is the self appointed authorities spouting armchair commentary on any and every subject, all while experts are degraded or ignored. From climate science to historical knowledge, if expert findings don't suit a certain narrative, they're ultimately dismissed. So how do we make sense of the world and who do we listen to if facts don't seem to matter? Let me introduce you to the experts here today to help guide us through this morass of misinformation. First of all, we have Dr. Richard Dennis, who is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute a former associate professor at the Crawford School of Economics and Government at the ANU. Richard also worked as chief of staff for the then leader of the Australian Democrats, Senator Nastasha stott despoia and as strategy advisor to the then leader of the Greens, Senator Bob Brown. Richard has worked as a consultant, company director and strategy advisor in the private sector and regularly contributes to The Guardian, the AFR, the Saturday Paper and The Monthly, He's also written or co-written six books. Next, we have Professor Adriana Verges, who is a marine ecologist based at UNSW Sydney. She's passionate about communicating science and has published more than 80 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. She's currently exploring the impacts of climate change in our oceans and developing restoration solutions to rewild our coastlines. She was awarded the UNSW Emerging Thought Leader Prize in 2019. And finally, we have Ed Cooper, who is a communications expert and was on the front lines when the internet collided with democracy, as he puts it, growing Australia's first online political movement, GetUp, to amass more members than every political party combined. He's been behind the scenes of many of the last decade's most prominent social movements and founded the New York-based Centre for Impact Communications. Ed is also the author of Facts and Other Lies. Put your hands together to welcome all of our guests today. Okay, guys, so I want to start by casting your minds back to, say, around 15 years ago. Uh, on the internet. Okay, so that's like 10,000 years in internet years, but let's do it. We were all liking stuff on Facebook. We were learning how to tweet. Instagram didn't exist yet. The term TikTok referred to a kind of biscuit. (laughs) Cast your minds back, and Ed, I'll start with you. What was the feeling then about the potential of the sort of dawn of the information age as we like to refer to it?
2: Uh, Yes, back when uh, I would say we were more in control of our information diets. Mm. Uh, So there was a lot of optimism back then. Uh, And a lot of people had very utopian ideas about what the internet meant for information and opinions. Uh, And it was really heralded when it arrived that it could... Uh, it, it could achieve a number of things that, uh, that were viewed as, as good. Um, it could give anyone access to information, regardless of where they were in the world. Uh, you didn't need uh, a, a, a library card, let alone you know, a subscription to JSTOR, or um, you know, have to go and, and go to some uh, you know, library uh, to, to find information. And, and it would connect us to each other. Uh, no matter your uh, restricted uh, mobility, or your geographic location, uh, or your um, you know ability to, to to find other people, and it also um, would uh, would break down barriers for things like uh, um, mobilizing people around an idea, like fundraising. So you see the real. Um, uh, standard bearer of this uh, this era for the internet was barack obama 's two thousand and eight presidential campaign, where he did all of those things to really upset the uh, uh, the apple card of, of political campaign convention and raised a lot of money with a few donors and remember his slogan was hope and that was really the slogan of the internet in uh, in the early days now that 's contrasted with uh, uh, the internet now, which I think is another four letter word starting with H, which is hate. Uh, hate is is really favoured by uh, the internet. And so you have Trump and, and his 2016 and 2020 campaigns are really the standard bearers there. Because, uh, whereas that era, you forgot the mass email forward uh, from back then. If <laughs> yeah. people remember, you, <laughs> you, you were less likely to see something on Facebook than to get a ch- an email chain forwarded you with a, the latest meme or cartoon or what a time. Uh, ..or joke. Um, but of course, now it's the platforms that decide what we see. And some things are favoured by the algorithms more than hope. A- and it is things that are outrageous, hyper partisan usually false, uh, and are designed to uh, really inflame people. And, uh, and so it's really, we've seen the transition from hope to hate.
1: Yeah. Adriana, what, what was your, I mean, back, where, where were you working at that time? And as a science communicator, did you see the potential there? Were you initially
3: excited by it? Yeah, so 15 years ago, um, I was doing my PhD, I was, you know, in the middle of it, and the internet was revolutionary for us um, in terms of doing research. So I went from literally on the first year of my PhD whenever I had to read a scientific paper, I had to go to the library and find it and photocopy it and then read it, and I went from that to everything was on PDFs, everything was on a computer, everything was so much faster. And and yeah, so we were able to take in a lot more of that past knowledge and integrate it into, you know, current um, research at a much, much faster pace. Like I often think of, yeah, just, we are producing more science now than ever. There's partly more scientists, but there's, it's also, you know, we have more tools to do everything faster.
1: Yeah. Mm. And Richard, what about you? Uh,
4: 2007, I had just finished working for Bob Brown as strategy advisor and yep. I'd just gone back to ANU to uh, work in the economics department there. And yeah, I agree. I mean, for me in the early 2000s, you know, Google and online access to journal articles radically changed my life as a researcher, much for the, for, so much for the better. I mean, the productivity of a researcher these days is so much higher. Uh, and yeah, look, don't get me wrong, I, I agree with Ed about the hate and I think there are things we can do about that. But, you know, the good old days weren't that good. Um, no, because go back 20 years, mm. like when I first started you know, working in think tanks and trying to interact with the media. And in those days, if you couldn't get on the Channel 9 news or the Channel 10 news, and you couldn't get in the Sydney Morning Herald, you couldn't get anywhere. Mm. You could, you know, what could you do? Write a memo. And no, but these days, like, you know, whether it's whether it's my own Twitter feed or the Australia Institute's Twitter feed, whether it's the incredibly diverse online media outlets that have sprung up, that, my access to audiences mm. is not edited by a handful of editors. You know, and Kerry Packer was not really known as a sort of jovial progressive chap who, <laughs> who who just wanted to help people with progressive ideas about tax make their voice heard in Australia. So, you know, let's let's not imagine that kind of pre-internet the media was this kind of fourth estate just standing up for truth, justice and literally the American way uh, it was hard and and, you know I would actually prefer today Mm. I would absolutely prefer today uh, to then and I look forward to a tomorrow where the the platforms have lost some of the incredible editorial power they've given themselves I think that's easier to fix Mm. than uh, than the problems we had fifteen or twenty years ago. Because
1: Ed, I think you mentioned in your book that we have always lived with parallel truths. Like that's not that's not new, is it?
2: No, it's not new. And, and people people sometimes think of disinformation as something new and uh, of our era. It's just another word for lies, which of course um, have not only existed always, but they're also a very normal part of our human behaviour and yeah. cognition and evolution, and there are very good reasons why we lie. Um, y- you know, whoever last complimented me on my appearance might have just been sugarcoating <laughs> that a bit to protect my feelings, because the bonds that we share are much more important than the truth. <laughs> so I, I'm, I, I'm all for it. Uh, so so some things are not new, and, and, and yes, R- Richard is right that, um, that we have seen vast improvement in a lot of things too. But... Uh, but one thing has changed, and the one thing that we need to, um, to reclaim and make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater as we, as we give free access to each other and information is that uh, they? yes, they were biased and, and yes, they were um, kept, uh, gate-kept, mm. um, but the media uh, had certain um, expectations on it in return for the power it has over uh, society. Uh, you know, and, and people expect that there will be regulation and there are parameters set. Um, There is certain behaviour that a media company um, can't uh, engage in that a social media company can Mm. uh, because we don't expect the same things in return. So when you open the floodgates to unfettered access to all the information, but you lose the quality control there, that's really at the heart of this discussion yeah. is how do you then filter the good information from the bad information? We used to outsource that, and then we never learnt the skills to do it ourselves. So that's the, that's the crux of the issue that we have to solve now that, now that you have un, uh, unlimited access to anything you want.
1: You, you mentioned disinformation. Just for the sake of this conversation, what, let's just set the parameters here. What's the difference between misinformation and disinformation?
2: Ah, yes, very good, very good question. So, misinformation is just any, any false information. So, um, sometimes there can be perfectly legitimate reasons to why something might be false, uh, like the Batuta advocate. That is technically misinformation, but it's satire, so there's a good reason it's not trying to harm uh, anyone. Um, And uh, sometimes misinformation can be unintentional, so a journalist might uh, make an error and then issue a correction or a retraction. Um, Disinformation is deliberate false information. So it's where someone is trying to fool you about the existence of a fact or the non-existence of a Mm -hmm. fact, and they're on a mission to deceive you. So um, that's what we need to worry about, because um, the tools that allow people to manipulate others um, online now are very powerful, and they have very big consequences in society. Um, So that's why we need to focus on the disinformation as the real problematic uh, part of it.
1: You write that the Brexit vote was one of the first sort of watershed moments of realisation for the world that we're not all quite on the same page. Um, What did Brexit reveal about the way the nature of information has changed?
2: I think it was a a big wake-up call for a lot of people because... Britain didn't uh, didn't split down the traditional ideological lines that it previously had, um, and so last year UK Labour lost um, a seat called Hartlepool, which had never been in in, in uh, anyone's hands other than Labour, um, because it was particularly pro Brexit area of Britain, and Labour is seen to its supporters now to be pro Remain or pro Europe, um, and so it fundamentally exposed new fault lines in society. And we're seeing something here similar at the moment in Australia, and we might all be surprised tomorrow uh, or tomorrow night when we see the results that something similar has happened here. Where have that rump of the electorate who are fiercely anti-lockdown and Mm -hmm. anti-vaccine and anti-mandates, where have they gone? Mm -hmm. Where have elements of Western Sydney that felt like they were treated unfairly Mm -hmm. during lockdowns here? The UAP is trying to court their vote quite strongly. Um, What about in Melbourne, where people uh, um, gathered in violent protests against things? Now, the people in those protests weren't neatly split along party ideology or along socio-demographic. They're new tribes that are forming in society, and we might be shocked tomorrow to wake up to find that we actually inhabit something that the UK found that they woke up to uh, post-Brexit referendum.
1: Well, speaking of surprises, of course, uh, after Brexit came the election of Donald Trump, much to the surprise of everyone, including the man himself. Um... Richard, do you reckon Trump's fake news tactics have trickled down to our politics here?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, And and look, I'll go back further. I actually think that Tony Abbott was really one of the kind of world leaders Mm. in fake news. And I don't think Trump is aware enough of the world around him to have consciously aped himself on Tony (laughs) Abbott. Uh, No, no, but I, I don't doubt that some American political strategists saw... Uh, how brutally effective a simplistic, fact-free campaign like Tony Abbott ran in 2013 yeah. could be. You know, just find something, find a progressive whipping boy uh, and just that's it, just make it about that. And, and you know, it's interesting because once upon a time, more so in Australia and the UK, that cons- what we call conservatives... Um, Uh, you know, there's a hint in the name, they they, they, they wanted to conserve things as they were. Mm. You know, it was progressives who were radical and wanted change. So historically, conservatives really lent heavily on the maintenance of institutions. Institutions like science, institutions like the courts, institutions like property rights. You know, they were all actually about maintaining the current distribution of wealth and power. And it's really in the last ten or fifteen years this has been thrown up in the air. Now conservatives are the ones, at, you know, as our conservative government here has literally attacked courts, attacked judges, attacked mm. science. It, like anything, is well, nothing is out of bounds anymore. And that's because rather than seeing their their security and their power coming from the maintenance of institutions. They now see their power coming from the maintenance of mass support. Mm. That's populism. Yeah. But again, populism is the opposite of conservatism. Historically, a wealthy elite was terrified of the views of the populace. Mm. And so we've seen all this changing so fast that, yeah, our names, don't, our categories don't really don't line don't up. Fit. They don't fit at all. There's nothing conservative uh, about Tony Abbott, except perhaps for some of his. Uh, selective support for some conservative institutions of religion, comma, from time to time when it suited.
1: Adriana, Richard mentioned an attack on science there as part of this phenomenon. And you talked about your initial excitement at the potential of the internet. As a science communicator, when did you start to have misgivings? When was your kind of Brexit moment? Mm
3: Um, Yeah, I have mixed feelings. I mean, like you, I think um, individual scientists now we're able to access audiences directly more than ever. So in a way, like the relationship between the scientists and and the general public has never been closer, which is, I think, a good thing. It allows us to connect and and build bridges better. But it is true that more broadly, I mean, I've been in Australia for nearly 20 years and and I, I... I keep seeing how you know how much Australia invests in science, the amount keeps decreasing. Mm-hmm. The you know during the during the pandemic, you know, universities were cut out from, you know, some of the life support kind of tools. So I do see that, you know, maybe there is less support for science, but from a personal kind of level, I also feel more connected than ever to mm-hmm. the general public. So I think there's a an easier way to um, yeah, share our knowledge than ever before, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, especially because in when it comes to the subject of climate science, for example, it's been clearly a sort of a diabolical problem for the media to wrap its collective head around. It's just it's been too hard for so many different reasons, partly because of the attack on science partly because it has apportioned this notion of false balance. Um, time and time again, you would see a Q&A panel with a climate sceptic alongside a climate scientist as if there were two sides of an argument. Why, why, though, is the format of mainstream media so hard for scientists to engage with? Um, for people who don't work in science, can you explain what informs your approach? Why you have to be careful with what you say? It seems obvious to you, Steve, but, but why do you have to be careful? What are the things that you need to weigh up before you speak out? And how does that make it hard to
3: communicate through
1: mainstream media?
3: So when it comes to, to climate science, I think a lot of... Um, as scientists, when, we, when we're trained, we are trained to... Only kind of speak up or you know when we're really sure, you know, and the level of kind of uh certainty that we demand of ourselves is very high. So often, if we're slightly unsure or if we're not the exact expert on that exact topic, we won't mm-hmm. speak up. And then, I think, yeah, the problem is that that space may get filled up by other people that know less, but they feel mm-hmm. like they can be part of that conversation. However, also, I think you know, people like myself, that work in, in climate change, you know, for ages, I, I kept thinking, maybe we're not explaining it well enough. Mm. Maybe we need to refine our messaging. Maybe we need a better example or, you know, and, and a better way to explain the science. But I've kind of come to the conclusion that it's, it's actually not about the knowledge at all. Like, people, you know, it's not going to be the facts that are going to make people understand something better. Um, I think to, to really communicate the 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 dramatic situation we're in, I think we need to actually connect with people's emotions more than anything else. So it's actually maybe not so much about about the information itself, the knowledge itself. Um, and of course, as scientists, we're not trained to connect with emotions. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard. Yeah. Mm. Uh,
4: look, I, I agree with that and I, I'm an economist, which, to be clear, I don't think is a scientist, even though my discipline says it is. Um, uh, but I think that well, there's a couple of things. One, we need to understand that sort of climate scepticism, as we think of it in Australia, is it's not universal around the world. Like, it's actually far more commonly found in countries with big fossil fuel industries, mm. right? So this is not like a problem of science because the scientists haven't had these problems in, in, in uncontested space. Mm. But in the US, in Australia, in Canada, you know, boy, have the fossil fuel industry swung hard and gone deep into the dirty tricks books. Whereas, again, conservatives in the UK are far less likely to be climate skeptics. Okay, Margaret Thatcher wasn't one. Boris Johnson's not one. It was the conservatives in New Zealand that implemented a carbon price. So we have to be careful not to take Australia and our idiosyncratic society and think there's a generalised problem with science and science communication, I think actually we're just uncomfortable talking about the elephant in the room, and that is that there is an enormous amount of political and cultural power in Australia that sits in the hands of the mining industry, and climate change butts up hard against it and it's actually more polite to have a conversation, I'm not criticising you, it's more polite to have a conversation about the challenges scientists have, Mm. which are real and important, that's a nicer conversation to have than you realise what Mobil and Shell and Exxon and and their lackeys in parliament and the media have done for 20 years. It's kind of nicer to pretend that we could help the scientists rather than what we need to... Yeah,
3: yeah to a point. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Spain and definitely the conversation's very different. But, you know, maybe it's a time, you know, like, yeah, in Spain, nobody has debated whether climate change is real for maybe 10 years. But it's still, you know, bef- you know 10 years ago, we were still having that conversation, so...
1: And Adriana, isn't it true that now, even if the science is accepted in this country, welcome to the party, everyone... Um, it's a hard story to tell. Nobody really wants to hear it. Like, I think I've, I've, I think of that NASA scientist, Peter Kalmus, who was arrested after tying himself to the door of the Chase Bank in pure desperation. And every now and then, like every couple of days, he'll pop into my Twitter feed and remind us all that the planet is on fire while we're looking at the Met Gala red carpet. That must take a toll to feel like you're not being listened to. And yes, there's a powerful, you know powerful lobby groups in this country that has contributed to that, but it's also because we just don't want to hear it, right?
3: Yeah, which is, yeah, it is definitely frustrating. And I think the situations, yeah, it's a lot more dire and dramatic than than you would think by just reading the news. And I, I can't believe that it's, I mean, I know it is one of the main issues of the election this year, but, um, you know, you look at the promises that the two main parties are, are making and they are not enough. So the conversation hasn't moved far enough, which is, yeah, incredibly frustrating. I want to have, um, pick the notion of the
1: armchair expert a bit. Um, and, yes, there are many amazing things about social media and it did shift the power imbalance between the huge media companies and and, uh, other voices, but it has created this idea of the armchair expert. But on the other hand, Ed, I wanted to ask you, what is wrong with that notion of questioning authority you know, it used to be that if you prided yourself on doing your own research and you were being sceptical, that meant you were informing yourself. Like that should be a good thing, right?
2: Well, yes, and as someone sitting in an armchair professing to be an expert, <laughs> I, I'm all for armchair experts. Um, I, I think the, 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 the bigger picture is um, human beings in general think we're a lot more rational than we are. Mm. And so when we really buy into that, Uh, us on the side of, say, climate scientists might leave it to the scientists to tell the story. I mean, the fossil fuel lobby doesn't leave it to the scientists to tell the story. They manufacture their own story Mm -hmm. and their own reality, and then they pull out all the dirty tricks to tell it. Uh, And so just because we're talking about research and talking about facts and talking about science, that is rarely happening in these people's minds on the internet. But we live under such an illusion that we still have to dress up even the most fanciful conspiracies in the cloak of research. Mm. You know, so when someone says on the internet, do your research, that's not what they're saying at all. What they're really saying is, I have a contrary opinion. I'm a contrarian, and I know this because I went and found out something surprising. Now, what they're expressing is, is really just uh, these deep cognitive... Uh, motivations to demonstrate superior knowledge or to connect with other like-minded people Mm -hmm. or to... um, You know, there's a background going on there, but we we just dress it up in rationality, and that's part of the problem why we we don't do a good job of addressing disinformation, because we think that the facts speak for themselves. Now we've got to come up with a better story. Human beings like stories, mm. y- you know. The, you're you're a journalist and writer. You know that. Mm. And everyone knows that. When, when any journalist goes to cover a topic, they go and find a story to tell to tell um, to tell that. And so, when you think that um, a story going head to head with another one, and, and one story is uh, Bill Gates has got a secret plot to control population by inventing a pandemic and administering uh, medicine to make people infertile so that we don't overpopulate the planet, when you think that story is not gonna win over, no, there was a series of peer-reviewed articles that incrementally led to a body of knowledge that we know as this immunology that led to an mRNA vaccine. You're kidding yourself. That story is always gonna win. We don't tell the vaccine story in the same compelling way that, that uh, you know, people on the other side of it tell it. So just because we're talking about research, we, we're just dressing up something which is much more primal, uh, which is the story that we're trying to tell.
1: And as Adriana said, it's about appealing to people's emotions, because mm-hmm. it turns out they're much more powerful than any other, any other kind of like compulsion. I think another thing that we need to talk about here is the issue of trust, though. Richard, why do you think tr- trust in experts and authority is so eroded?
4: Um, well, let's stick with climate. I, I th- and what I was saying before about conservatism, I, I love it when it turns out I'm accidentally coherent. Um, uh, <laughs> I, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like think, think back to the 1980s and concerns about genetic modification, GM crops. Mm. Whose side were the conservatives on? They're on the side of science. What were progressives worried about? Big pharma manipulating science, and, right? Climate change just smashed that to bits, mm. destroyed it. Right? And now, and, and I remember when Greenpeace uh, broke into the CSIRO in Canberra and, and, and smashed up a whole bunch of crop experiments because they thought that CSIRO were kind of untrustworthy industry-funded fronts for the GM industry. This is in the early 2000s. But of course today, we know that progressives are on the side of science, and conservatives are the one whipping up weird scare campaigns. Mm -hmm. So I mean it when I say once upon a time, certainly in the second half of the 20th century, conservatives lined up with science and a version of progress that was as enlightenment, you know, as you could kind of get, But when the science said, maybe the most powerful industry in the world needs to shrink, Mm. (laughs) they changed sides in a heartbeat. So it's okay that people are, you know, dubious about the science of GM. It's okay that people are dubious about the science of climate change. Um, You know, please, I don't mean this in any way to dismiss other people's beliefs, but I don't believe in any God. And I know people who do, and that's fine. But there's not a lot of science behind a belief in God. Mm. You know, Australia is the land of mateship and, and 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 equality. God, all of the objective data says that the opposite is true. We punch down, and we punch down hard, and look how we treat refugees. So the stories we tell have always been out of sync with mm. reality. The question is how far. But you ask about trust. Well, I think at one point in Australia, trust got between the fossil fuels industry and its profit. And if they had to knock down science, Mm. so be it. Didn't happen in Spain. Didn't happen in the UK. But crazy stuff happened in the UK. Different crazy stuff. You know, so when I go overseas and talk about how Australia's planning not to transition away from fossil fuels, but to double our coal exports and treble our gas exports, people think, what are you, mad? And then I say to them, oh, have you talked to the Americans about gun ownership? (laughs) No, but think about it. Like Americans believe that owning guns will make them safe. Mm. Okay, the Japanese think killing whales is really important, even though they didn't really do it before World War II. So every country does some dumb stuff. Every country decides you know, where to spend its dumbness. Um, No, it's okay. Like, because we're not hyper-rational beings all the time. But I think what's new in Australia and what the internet makes a lot easier is the dumbness can spread, Mm. right? It's really contagious on the internet. Um, But, you know, the opposite's true. When I try to point out to Australian conservatives how come all the Conservatives in other countries don't share your concerns about climate science? Doesn't that make you question your passion? The answer is not. <laughs> so, you know, it can spread, but when we want to put up our boundaries, we, we, we can and we do. And, and, I, and I think we just need to be far more open and understanding about our own foibles, our friends' foibles, mm. our historic foibles, and not just think that foibles are new. Like, Americans genuinely believe that machine guns make them safe. I mean, and everyone else in the world looking in, it's terrifying. Mm. But no one can seek office in the US saying, let's fix that, right? So we have to kind of be a bit kind to ourselves, even when we're exposing our inanity.
1: I want to talk about wellness for a moment or another word for it, health, um, Ed, you know, this, this trust has eroded from not just um, you know, positions of science or, or political leaders, it extends to doctors, and I, I, in your book you write a little bit around how the informa- information architecture now makes it easier for us to cherry-pick information, and decide who we're going to listen to and who we're not going to listen to. How, how has it made it easier for people to, to listen to, not just listen to people, but almost like switch allegiance, like they're, they're joining a team for, of the likes of people like Pete, Pete Evans, for example?
2: Who you would say is not a scientist? <laughs> yes.
1: I'll, I'll go there, yeah. Um, I'll say that. Look, he's a,
2: he's a, he's a great cook. <laughs> um, but this goes back to what some of the things we 've touched on already, so so one of them is these new tribal fault lines yeah. that are happening, so these anti lockdown protests might you might be as likely to find a, a fringe neo nazi violent extremist as a wellness hippie influencer. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, what, what Richard said about uh, the CSIRO being the villain uh, in the early 2000s, uh, you know, we've seen a, a similar thing. Um, a lot of the, uh, the wellness uh, movement came out of a mistrust in the pharmaceutical industry, which was not misplaced. Mm. You know, there's been plenty of very irresponsible corporate behaviour by pharma- uh, 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 drug companies uh, and, and others that gave rise to a scepticism as to their motives. So all of a sudden we're expected to flip the switch and say now that it's a COVID vaccine they've invented, you've got to trust them implicitly. So um, I think we've got to remember that when you erode trust in society, in our institutions, in each other, in, uh, in corporate, uh, you know, in, in industry as well, then um, it, the cupboard will be bare when you then need it. Uh, And that's what we've seen during the pandemic, and and that was a large part of the problem. Uh, So the wellness industry is is really one of the consequences where you do give unlimited access to all the information that you need, people can lead themselves wherever they want to go. So you might have experienced this if you've ever Googled your symptoms when you're not well, (laughs) and Uh, With enough Googling, you invariably have terminal cancer, (laughs) right? Well, no matter what the symptom is. So this is the reality when you get your information about health. So um, when the the wellness uh, community are, are often talking about things that used to be filled with pastoral care from organised religion, uh, and, and other things that aren't actually medical. And, uh, and and it's very connected now that you can uh, put yourself in a bubble and shut yourself off from any um, traditional scientific or conventional medicine advice. And, and we've seen the results of, of that in the pandemic.
1: It's interesting. The pandemic has been instructive in a lot of ways. And the, the, uh, there's been quite a few confronting and scary aspects about the cupboard you know, being bare, as you say. But It has, there were crystallising moments, especially at the height of the lockdowns, when people were, did seem to be turning to the experts again, did seem to be tuning into the press conferences, and didn't want to hear from the politicians. They wanted to actually hear from the chief health officer. That was was the information that they were looking for. Adriana, do you think that is encouraging to remember that, to know that perhaps it's a vocal minority that we are talking about here on the internet and that there is still a bedrock of trust there?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I was reading an an article that where they showed that in Australia and New Zealand, at least, the the trust in science uh, increased during the pandemic um, so that the vast majority of people um, trusted science more than before. So I think, think, yeah, that is encouraging. I guess... um, yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering how representative are those minorities, those, you know, those anti-vaxxers, say, in Australia. I know that they're very loud, but, you know, are they representative of a very large part of the population or...?
2: Well, well the best example of, of that is, is actually the gun issue in America, um, where even amongst Trump Supporters and even amongst gun owners, there's 90% support for universal background checks and for more common-sense gun control in America. Um, but the reason why they don't have those things is that the 10% cares way more passionately about it than the 90%. And so that could be a similar thing that we're seeing here with the pandemic. And, you know, Sophie, as you said, there was a real thirst for, for, for expert legitimate expert Mm. opinion when the shit hit the fan. You know, like, okay, enough of all this. I actually need to know what is the life-saving information. Um, But the, say, 5% of Australians who rejected that information are so passionate about it Uh, that they seem a lot larger than they are. And they're not just passionate about it, they're very well organised and they're very well connected to each other. And this has been another um, unintended consequence of the internet and social media, um, which, you know, as Richard said, that has had some wonderful uh, consequences. Uh, But one of the the other sides of the double-edged sword is that if you have a very fringe opinion and a very harmful opinion that is rejected by 95% of your peers, The mitigating forces used to be your physical community, um, your family, the people who lived in your neighbourhood, your colleagues at work, and they would really rein in the degree to which you could possess fringe opinions, especially if they're harmful. Mm. Now you can shun those mitigating forces of restraint and find the other very rare people Uh, who are out there who share your harmful opinion uh, and you connect with them. And what the um, cognitive behaviourists will tell us is that when you connect with someone who has an opinion like that, you become very hostile to outside thought Mm. and you become fact resistant and science resistant so that the ways we try to convince those people to change their opinions like by showing them science in fact become counterproductive because they have peers that they're very closely bonded to where they can signal to their peers that they are a good person by rejecting facts and rejecting information and spreading disinformation. So we haven't found a good way to solve that, but that's a big part of the problem, that they're not just a vocal minority, but they're very, very strongly bonded to each other.
1: I mean, I think we've all seen that. Everyone has at least one person that they've watched go down the QAnon rabbit hole on Facebook and... and there are quite a few people who are having to have these conversations and they're hitting a brick wall with family members. And nobody has the tools in the toolkit to deal with that. This seems like a relatively new phenomenon.
2: Yeah, and it's one of the most common questions I get is from people who say, my family member has fallen down this rabbit hole, what can I do? Um, And it's heartbreaking. It has uh, torn families and friendship groups apart which is one of the reasons why they're forming such strong bonds with others who share mm-hmm. their opinion. If you look at the, um, the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne or more recently, the convoy to Canberra, um, the, and you listen to what people are saying who are part of those protests, they have a, they have a similar story. They might have lost their job because mm-hmm. of their opinions on vaccines. They might have lost being cut off from their families but they still crave those social bonds and so they found it with, with other people. And what do we do when we look at something uh, like the convoy to Canberra? Our, our instincts tell us to mock it and we, we think we correct them by pointing out just how wrong they are. Your opinions are so wrong mm that I must must demonstrate the degree to which you are wrong and we focus on the difference. Um, Whereas all the science tells us that the way you de-radicalise people or you um, bring them out of cults uh, or pop their conspiracy bubbles um, is in fact you focus on the things that you share in common. Uh, And uh, and you don't focus on the degree of, of difference, you focus on the degree of similarity before you can get to a point to, um, to de-radicalise them. So, as, as hard as it is to do, we've got to, you know, the, there's a whole section of Australian society um, that just in the last two years have cleaved themselves off from the rest of society. And we really need to reach out to them and welcome them back into this shared, mainstream, fact-based community that the rest of us live in, or else they just get further radicalised and further extreme.
4: Can I just yeah. add, I mean, go read Van Battam's Q and on and on, um, it's, it's compelling. And, and look, I, I live in Canberra, the People's Republic of the ACT, uh, and it's hell. We've had minority government there for 20 years now. It's just terrible. <laughs> um, uh, but, like, there's an enormous strategic error from the, from the anti-vaxxers to decide to come to Canberra because I love living in Canberra. Uh, but the one thing you can't do in Canberra really is have a decent protest. It's the politest city in the country. No, no, and everyone's, half of the population of public servants are so going to a protest is a bit risky, right? You don't want to kind of wear your politics on your sleeve, interestingly enough, in Canberra. And of course, none of the politicians live in Canberra, right? You all think they all live in Canberra. No, they pop in every now and then, right? Anyway, the point is that the one group in Australia that was best able to welcome (laughs) the conspiracy theorist nutjobs were Canberrans, who just ignored them. (laughs) You've never seen such effective ignoring (laughs) in your life. And these grown men driving their enormous cars around with ridiculous flags, tooting their horn all day long, and everyone not even looking at them. No, I mean it, like it was an accident, but yeah, if they'd have gone to Melbourne or gone to where, I bet you could have got some aggro, and they came to the one place in the country. <laughs> and they just, I felt actually sorry for them because <laughs> no, no, it didn't matter what they did. And I was at the shops one day and this guy pulled up in a disabled park out the front of the supermarket, barged in, no mask. And this lovely 50 year old woman stopped him and said, you know, you can't come in without a mask. And he started off on his high horse, and she said, Look, if you tell me what you'd like, I'll go and get it. For you. And he was just beaten. Like he was just a husk of a man. And, and he didn't even know what he wanted. And he settled on, Oh, just get us some eggs. But he didn't actually, he wanted a confrontation. And he got welcomed by this lovely woman that went and offered him a, a curated shopping experience. <laughs> so uh, we I we need to
1: set her on the Q and R, Q Well, and no, but, but it, it, it's
4: right. Like being right at people. Yeah. Being right at people is another form of performance art. Yeah. And, and the most common political advice they give people is: How is being right working for you? Yeah. Do you want to go and be right at him again? Yeah. You know, will will that... No, because if you're trying to solve a problem, that's different from being right. And I think that's where the facts and expertise... Like, being right is not a winning strategy in a lot of games.
1: Well, you mentioned Canberra, Richard, so we're going to have to talk about it. We're a day out from the election. Roundabouts. It's terrible. Don't come. But I'm going to give people a chance to ask questions, and there's a microphone at either end of the room. So if you start to approach, but we're going to talk about the election campaign because we've got one day left. And I just want to sound you out. Richard, do you think the election campaign coverage has been particularly worse this time around? Or do we say that every cycle? And does this kind of coverage enable politicians to lie, deny, or at least fudge the facts?
4: Uh, Yeah, it's worse, I've watched politics at close range for more than 20 years and this is worse than it's ever been, would be my sense. Uh, I mean, let me give you a simple example. We've been told in Australia for 20 years that the number one thing we need to do to fix the economy is run a budget surplus. That was a lie. America has, you know, the last president to deliver a budget surplus was Bill Clinton, no one cares. The last UK Prime Minister deliver a budget surplus with Tony Blair, no one cares. But in Australia, like America's got machine guns, we've got budget surpluses. Um, <laughs> so we've told ourselves this lie forever. Now we've got a trillion dollars in debt, the biggest deficit we've ever seen. Neither party's mentioned it. No, that, that's fine. But no one, there was no apology. Mm. Like, oh, you know, for 20 years, we told you the one thing we had to do was wrong and we changed our minds. So big picture, we're just silent about climate change, really. We're silent about the the thing we were told was important that wasn't. And the media's behaviour has just been disgraceful at press conferences Mm -hmm. where, and I'll just wrap up on this point, I mean, we kind of take the idea of the, the, the hero journalist, the fourth estate, doing it for democracy so seriously that we've put journalism and the media on a bit of a pedestal. And let's be clear, there are really nice priests out there and there's some terrible ones. There are some really nice politicians out there and there are some terrible ones. There are some really nice business leaders and there are some terrible ones. Our language doesn't even allow us to talk about terrible journalists. Do you know what I mean? Like To attack a bad journalist is to attack journalism. And historically, to Ed's point earlier, yeah, there was this sort of sense of responsibility in the media you know, that you at least had to keep up appearances of objectivity. Mm. Well, let's just be honest. Those days are gone. There is nothing objective about what's happened in Australian press conferences. There's nothing objective about what's happened on the front page of newspapers. Uh, In good news, hasn't shifted a vote. Well, I
2: think it was a... One of the biggest unintended consequences that I didn't answer in your first question to bookend it there, of the internet coming along, was it destroyed the media industry as we know it. Um, I mean, who would be a journalist these days? The entire business model of our news media industry collapsed in the 1990s when, uh, when the internet came along because it showed that information is not profitable. And so where does that leave a company that turns a profit, in theory, by providing information? They can't. They've done one of, three, one of three things. They're either publicly funded, so I, uh, the ABC is wonderful, but we all know uh, the political interference that, that mm-hmm. hamstrings it in terms of this fake balance we're talking about. Um, clickbait works, mm-hmm. that's not news, that's celebrity gossip, that's you know crocodile stories. I saw that a <laughs> crocodile just picked uh, Albo as winner, wonderfully <laughs> Um And the other thing that is profitable is opinion. And hyperpartisan opinion. So that is the media. When we talk about yeah. the media now, we're talking about a small number of publicly funded uh, actual journalists and the, the, the rest are really a, opinion uh, formers and people wanting clickbait where what have we seen this election? The camera has turned around on the press pack. Mm. That's never happened before because the camera on the politician doesn't sell, but the camera on the press pack for entertainment does. So, the elephant in the room, again, is just this breakdown of, of our entire information ecosystem.
1: And further to that, with the lack of resources, and there's a lack of kind of um, experience in that press pack now, is which is what we're seeing now, and that's what a lot of the remaining senior journalists are talking about. There used to be a hierarchy there, it was there for a reason. People, experienced journos like Laurie Oaks would be launching the questions and you're seeing this kind of inexperience bear out in the press packs now.
2: Would you go to journalism school now knowing that there's probably not a job for you at the end of it? Well,
4: I'd go further. I mean, unfortunately, no-one will say this out loud, so I will. Um, A lot of those journalists are disposable. Mm. Right, There is no career path in behaving that way. Mm. Their boss is not telling them that, right, so the senior journalists are not behaving like that because for them it 's a repeat game, mm. right But for a lot of these young people behaving like this at the press gallery, as you said, yeah they 've become the story it 's an audition it's well yeah, it, yeah but it 's likely an unsuccessful one no they 're just getting churned out, and it 's a terrible way to treat young people. Uh, It's turning that young person's career into a, a week's worth of clickbait.
1: Do we have any audience questions? Over here.
0: Actually, all of you probably addressed a lot of what I said because my question is about the media and that whole notion of being an expert. And, in fact, we've never kind of seen them as experts, but filtering expert information. And just as you have just addressed... They've kind of lost it a bit now, and I really feel for them. I mean, on the stage here, I've got a couple of heroes, including Richard and, and Sophie. I know you are at Crikey and so on. So thank God for things like Crikey in the Saturday paper. But the rest of it, really, I'm, so my question is, how can we kind of counsel the media back to the position where they feel comfortable to report on things and actually have an opinion but for it to be a bit more balanced. So I'm really urging, how, how can we all... We've all seen it been quite disheartened. So is there a way we can counsel them back to sort of saying, we're not really experts, but, hey, we're going to f- try and filter this in a very generous, unbiased way so you can hear from experts?
2: They, they did this fascinating research in the US where, um, similar to Australia, they have what we call news deserts. So it's not just about the ABC... It's also about local and regional news, which could have been you know, for-profit companies, but they've all gone extinct. And they showed the research in the US that where, um, where the local papers and news stations went out of business, um, there was a, a politician's salaries increased, corruption increased, environmental protections decreased, and uh, local taxes went up. They could show a correlation between all of these things. So the solutions here are you know, kind of twofold. One, we need to invest in, in our national public broadcasters, but two, we also need to invest in local and regional news and reinvent some some uh, business models there, whether they're backed by crowdfunding and philanthropy or there's some way to um, have some hybrid model, but that, that's a big part of the problem.
1: It's also about the frenetic pace of news now too and this kind of unfillable hole that it's, we're trying, this gaping maw that we're just throwing stuff into as well. I mean, that's something that every young journalist is battling these days too. Mm. Isn't that right, uh,
4: Look, it is. And, and unfortunately, again, we want to talk about the media like it's special, but actually, to the extent it's provided by companies making a profit, it's just a product. Uh, and... Think about the time and effort that used to go into editing a feature-length film Mm. and compare that to the fact that Netflix wants longer content, not shorter. Think about how free-to-air TV thought that a 48-minute program couldn't be longer because 12 minutes of ad and hours mattered, but Netflix needs thousands of hours of stuff. So The commercial pressures to edit (laughs) have gone. And the same is kind of true with the news. Mm. Like, if you've just got a newspaper and people buy it in the morning, that's quite an entirely different product than if you've all day long got to be popping some new clickbait up. Mm. So the fact that we want to consume news all day long means I've got to make news all day long, and quality will not be maintained.
1: Got another question over here. Yes. Um, you spoke at the start, Ed, about hope, um, and, and this question is actually for all the panelists. But I just wondered, you know, in an age now where we hope is such a depleted resource, and especially hope in in media and in, in the news and in journalism, what role do journalists have in recreating the hope that has been lost in the for the public in journalists and in journalism, so that it can continue to carve out the truth and allow this robust discussion um, amongst the public and its institutions.
2: Oh, you have to be hopeful, don't you? And, you know, this panel's about expertise and and people can be wrong all the time. So, you know, if you said a year ago that um, you could reinvent politics in Australia within a few months, you you know, you'd feel very hopeless but I see there's someone here in a Sophie Scomps t-shirt I could, down, down there, right? One of these teal independents, right? They've completely changed politics in the course of a few months. And you wouldn't have been hopeful that that was the case. Um, all the time, we get su- surprised. Just as we're surprised when Trump, you know, has this this rise in, in the U.S. off the back of these forces, and we despair about it, then so, you know, good things to counter counterbalance that can happen just as surprisingly as well. So, you know, the, the topics that I talk about about disinformation and how to repair our information ecosystem, where 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 we haven't fallen over the precipice yet in Australia. We can still salvage all of that stuff. We look at the US, they're way further down the, the slope and they're gaining momentum than, than we are and they're finding these violent consequences as a result. Um, we're not there yet, we know what we need to do. Uh, and you know, we've listed some of the solutions here, but, uh, but you have to be hopeful because uh, uh, you can always be surprised in the, in the right direction.
3: Something I would add from an environmental point of view is that there are actually a lot of reasons to be hopeful. We are fixing problems all the time, but I feel like we don't talk enough about the solutions and the positive um, environmental news. So, And and I I don't know why that is, I'm I'm not a media expert, but um, for example, I don't know, in New South Wales... um, single-use plastics, um, so this is, this is different because this is compostable, but they're going to be prohibited from the 1st of June, right? So, and, and circular, you know, anything that resembles a single-use is going to have to be circularly kind of used. Like, that's, you know, waste is a massive problem. We've actually come in with a solution. There was a new law that was, is going to be implemented from the 1st of June, but we're not hearing enough about it. Um, not, like, even people that you know, I've been talking to my friends about it. It's like, did you know that single-use plastic bags will be completely banned in New South Wales from the first of June? People don't know. We don't share those stories. In terms of the oceans that I know well, we fixed water quality. I mean, obviously, with the floods that we've had, we are having some water quality issues, but we fixed water quality you know in the 90s and people still don't know about it people think that things keep getting worse Mm. and we don't do a good enough job of of telling the world when we fix a problem because we're kind of immediately focusing on the next problem but if we stopped and we we shared those good news i think people would you know get inspired and and that would lead to you know more environmental good news stories so I don't know why that is that we don't hear enough no, about that's it. That's really
1: interesting because you talk about the fact that we need to appeal to people's emotions, and I think with climate science and the environment, people just get weighed down with the despair and the and and, and the seemingly hopeless situation. So as you say, that's a much more empowering story to tell and a more inspi- inspiring we, story to tell.
3: Yeah, and we have a lot of the science, like we have a, you know, nearly all of the science that we need to live a better future that, you know, where we stay within the Paris Agreement. We, we have what it takes. It's just now about the human factor. Um, it's not about more science. Richard, can i have you got a
1: note of hope to end no, on? No, I want
3: to be contrary. Oh. Um, ah. uh, no, I, I, I am an optimist. Uh,
4: I am a brutal, pragmatic optimist who is fuelled by white-hot rage. Um,
1: Nurse that anger. Hope yes. is
4: not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. I am an optimist about change. I do not hope change will happen. I do not think that if I sit and hope, anything will change. I am not hopeful, I am optimistic. I know that there is nothing stopping Australia from transitioning towards zero carbon economy except the political power of people who make a fortune out of stopping it, right? So don't get me wrong, I am more optimistic than you because the one thing my economics degree tells me is there's nothing stopping us doing any of the things that you feel like doing, except someone who's more determined than you stopping it from happening. So hope is not a strategy. Thank you for wearing a shirt and doing something to change people's behaviour, because it is only if you go do something different that you will get something different.
1: On that note, let us all charge out into the night. Please join me in thanking Richard, Adriana and Ed.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.